All right, let me start us with a prayer. This is a prayer by John Wesley. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed by thee or laid aside by thee, laid aside for thee. Exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine and I am thine. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. I accidentally forgot to change up the scripture here, but it's just as good this week as it was last week. I was glad when they said unto me, we will go into the house of the Lord from the Coverdale Psalter. Today is probably going to run a little short, unless, uh, unless everyone has questions, which this is the last session of our sort of prayer book history. And, and when we come back, of course, next week is our budget meeting and everything. When we come back, we will start journeying through the prayer book. I'm going to do it a little bit out of order at times. I'm going to start with the uh, Eucharist service, so what we do every Sunday together, and then uh, and then we'll proceed on from there through the uh, through the rest of of the prayer book. Uh, actually, when it, when we come back, I'll do a prayer book overview, and then we'll start into all of that. Anyhow, so last week we ended with first in England, 1662, the prayer book basically reaches its final form as the book of common prayer. But also in Scotland, the prayer book has developed in a little bit different way. And there is a Scottish set of liturgies that becomes the basis for the American liturgies that we have to this very day. And so that's where we're going to start. The reason that takes place. Now, of course, the first Anglican churches in North America in what would be the United States, were planted from the Church of England. Uh, many of the historic Anglican churches uh, that, that you know, including uh, the church that Nick grew up in, the Falls Church, uh, just outside of D.C., you know, they, they were planted originally as British churches. However... There was this thing called the Revolution. I think you've heard of it. Um, that put a little bit of a divide between 
the Anglican churches in North America, or the Episcopal Church, the Protestant Episcopal Church in the newly founded United States of America, and, uh, and the Church of England. And the American church needed bishops. But the English church would not consecrate bishops who did not see the uh, king or queen of England as the head of the church. So Samuel Seabury was the first American bishop. Uh, the first bishop consecrated for the Episcopal Church in the United States of America. But the Church of England would not consecrate him. So, because the Church of England refused to consecrate him, on the right page, okay. Seabury instead sought consecration from the Scottish Episcopal Church, the, the uh, Scottish franchise of Anglicanism. And because that was the stream from which his consecration flowed, he developed the, uh, and the, when he developed the first Eucharistic liturgy for the American churches in 1786, he based it on the Scottish form, complete with the epiclesis. That's the invocation of the Holy Spirit. We do that every Sunday still. And the language of oblation. Hear that word a couple of times during our Eucharistic liturgy. That's uh, that's all his work that he borrowed from the Scottish Episcopal Church's version of the liturgies over two centuries ago. So three years later, those elements were carried over into the completed first American prayer book. It only took three years. Wait, wait till we get to the 79. <laughs> In line with the Scottish tradition, the principal Sunday morning service was morning prayer with litany and anti-communion. So that's uh, basically um, uh, it, when, when there was a Eucharist service, the, the elements would be held over, and then on Sundays where there were, when there was morning prayer, they would be distributed uh, from, from the previous Eucharist service. The Gloria Patri was now, uh, that's the glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, it's now, and never shall be, world without end, amen. That was said now only once, rather than as many as a dozen times in any particular 1662 prayer book service. <laughs> so, oh, one 
notable change for, for this edition, the original American prayer book, was that morning prayer and evening prayer were missing parts that were in the original and are known today. Uh, the Magnificat, the Song of Mary, uh, and the Nunc Dimittis, which is the Song of Simeon. Uh, those, those were left out of the evening prayer service, and the, and the Benedictus was shortened to four verses in morning prayer. So basically, their reasoning was that those songs of praise, those, those canticles, as they're called, were so specific to those characters of, of Mary and Simeon and Zechariah that, that it really didn't mean much for us. And so they left him out. Meanwhile, for the first time, parents could now serve as sponsors at baptism instead of godparents. Now, several people in here have had their kids baptized since we've been doing this. You know, and you come up and you make those, those pledges for the kids, you know, especially if they're too, too young to make those promises on their own. Before this prayer book, you had to have godparents up here doing that. You could not do that for yourself. You could not do that for your own kids. So this was a bit of a revolutionary step in that regard. Also, several other minor changes were made. The word elect was omitted from the catechism. This is back when the catechism was still in the prayer book. Uh, because people were a little uh, ruffled by its Calvinist connotations. And, um, and in regard to the Eucharist, the answer to the question, what is the inward part or thing signified? It was changed from the traditional answer, the body and blood of Christ which are verily and indeed taken and received to the body and blood of Christ, which are spiritually taken and received. So definitely a move away from, from the leaning of, okay, you could take the more Lutheran understanding of this to, uh, you kind of have to lean toward the, the Calvinist understanding of that, but not an election because we don't want Calvinism there. Uh, the, the service of holy matrimony was shortened. Uh, also, the visitation of the sick uh, makes no mention of confession or absolution. So this is, as you can see, this is going in a much more evangelical direction at this point. Uh, and short forms... Forms of prayer to be used in families were included for the first time based on a 1705 booklet by Edmund Gibson, who was later the Bishop of London. So England still has a little influence, and it's one of the best things that's, 
been put in the American prayer book, in my opinion, that has existed from then until this day. Though in the 28, it's particularly hard to find if you don't know where to look for it. Uh, and finally, an edition of this prayer book was, was released three years later in 1792 containing the ordinal, which is our ordination services, our uh, ordination and consecration of a bishop. Now, in 1892, so, so that prayer book lasted over a year, which is pretty good for prayer books in America. Uh, at the 1880 General Convention, William Reed Huntington introduced a resolution to study the possibility of a revision that would bring liturgical enrichment and increased flexibility of use. So, again, if you've seen the 79, it only goes downhill from here. Uh, uh, increased flexibility of use. Um, goodness. Um, the, <laughs> the, um, so, so some of the things that are influencing this. One, the influx of immigrants to the U.S. and the frontier, uh, uh, the whole frontier situation, called for easier to modify rights. You needed ways to, to adjust the rights depending on context. It's like if you were meeting in the lunchroom or something. You need to adjust a few things. <laughs> Meanwhile, Another contributing factor, and I'm probably downplaying this, is the Anglo-Catholic movement. What started with the Oxford movement uh, in, in England, with the Tractarians and everything, bringing a higher emphasis on, on the traditional liturgical practices of the church, bringing some, some of those back from the medieval period, uh, the, the use of certain vestments, the use of candles, in certain contexts, the use of incense and various things. All of this was taking, uh, was gaining ground in England and it became an influence, possibly even a bigger influence in North America during that period of time. So, of course, that influenced the liturgy. The Magnificat and the Nunc Dimittis, the, the, uh, uh, and the Benedictus, those were restored to the, to the daily office during that period of time during the 1892 prayer book. So they were gone for a century, but they were back by popular demand. And introduced in this edition were opening sentences for morning and evening prayer that reflected the seasons of the church year. So, so in morning and evening prayer, you know, depending on the time of year, you're going to have different opening sentences for the first time. And uh, for the first time, 
because these had been left out in the previous prayer book, uh, the Apocrypha and readings from Revelation were included for the first time in the daily office lectionary. So the first prayer book, kind of like that 1604 prayer book in England, had done away with Apocrypha readings. Meanwhile, Revelation, well, I guess they just thought it was weird. <laughs> but almost immediately, here's, here's, here's the way the American church does it. Almost immediately after the 1892 edition was published, there was push for further revision. The significant... Uh, between those two editions, there are not as significant changes, obviously because the push for revision came right on the heels of the previous edition. Am I back to where my notes are? Cut. Yes, I am. So, uh, the main changes in the 1928 prayer book from the previous one are the excision of more extreme Calvinism and a somewhat diminished emphasis on human sinfulness. Now, it's still quite in there. If you've ever been to a 1928 service, uh, based service, it's still quite in there. So that's a, it's a minor toning down of language, especially compared to what happens in the 79 prayer book. I am really gripping into that one, aren't I? <laughs> I don't mean to, but it's easy. <laughs> uh, uh, second, the alteration of the matrimonial service uh, uh, such that the pledges that were being made were more similar between a husband and wife. Um, the 1928 prayer book also began a general shift from medieval patterns of the visitation of the sick, which had generally interpreted sickness as incurable and as punishment. And you really get this. Like, if you look back at the 1662 prayer book, for, for instance, one, if you're sick, you've, you've done something wrong, and two, you're probably going to die. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, a, a bit of a move away from that. There's still some of that language in there. Uh, it did not entirely omit it, but it, it thankfully turned it down a good bit. And uh, the third Good Friday's uh, call, and I don't have it here, um, was altered to amend what was deemed a slur against the Jews that had been present ever since the 1549 prayer books. So we're thankful for that. I don't have that collect with me. I meant, I meant to bring it. Um, but yay. Now, the 1928 prayer book, of course, was around for half a century. So people got really used to it. Uh, you know, people really didn't have a chance to get used to the one from the 1890s. It 
lasted 30 years, but, but you know, this one had lasted 50 years. This was almost as good as the first American prayer book, which lasted a century. So people got very attached to the way that the 1928 prayer book read. But uh, a lot of things happened in the middle of the 20th century. One of which was what was called the liturgical movement, or sometimes the new liturgical movement, which was the 19th and early 20th, and, uh, and pretty much the complete 20th century, movement of scholarship for the reform of worship. This covered a lot of areas. Uh, some really cool stuff happened out of it. There was a lot of study up on the patristic church and, and how the early church worshipped everything. And, and so it was very helpful in that, that regard just to root ourselves in understanding. Okay, how did the early church do that? Is, are there things that we can bring into the way we as Anglicans or as Lutherans or as Methodists or whatever else? Are there things that we can pull on there? The question there then becomes, how in line is this stuff with our tradition as well? Meanwhile, in the Catholic Church, of course, there was Vatican II. And some of the stuff from the liturgical movement fed into Vatican II. The main thing about Vatican II, of course, that affected liturgical worship is the standardization of the service being said in the vernacular, in everyday language instead of in Latin. Uh, so, so uh, on that end, on the Catholic end, there's this bringing the service down to the people more, making the service more accessible. Meanwhile, more Anglican and other liturgical churches are connecting themselves more back to what you might say was the Catholic tradition. Things that were done in Catholic services or sometimes the, um, uh, the Orthodox services and, and things that were pulling from the ancient liturgies at the same time. So uh, scholar Horton Davies, uh, who's a professor at Princeton, uh, says... <coughs> What is fascinating about the liturgical movement is that it enabled Protestant churches to recover, in part, the Catholic liturgical heritage, while the Catholics seem to have appropriated the Protestant valuation of preaching, of shared worship in the vernacular tongue, and the importance of laity as the people of God. There was more participation in Catholic services by the people themselves, which you know, 
we find our roots for that in what Cranmer was doing when he developed the prayer book services, the 1549 services, uh, wanting the participation of the people to be central to that worship. Oh yeah, I'm part of the Second Vatican Council and the Catholic Church's adoption of the Mass and the vernacular, uh, a standard during uh, the process of... I should have just left this word out. I'm not <laughs> even going to... Adjournamento. Yes. Adjournamento. Uh, represented a significant high point in the influence of the liturgical movement. Meanwhile, by the 20th century, the Church of England made quite radical ceremonial, ceremonial and ritual changes, most incorporating a revival of medieval Christian practice under the influence of the Anglo-Catholic movement. A book called The English Missal, published in 1912, was a conflation of the Eucharistic rite of the 1662 prayer book and the Latin prayers of the Roman Missal, including the rubrics indicating the posture and manual acts. So uh, all, the, all the hand motions, the bowing, the genuflecting, everything that typically happens during the Mass was spelled out in this adapted prayer book that mostly used the language of the 1662 uh, prayer book. Uh, it was a recognition of widespread practices in the Anglo-Catholic movement for many years. So meanwhile, in the United States, uh, a guy named William Palmer Ladd, who had visited a number of the European centers of Catholic scholarship and reform, introduced many of the the Anglo-Catholic movement's ideas at the Berkeley Divinity School in New Haven. He wrote a series of magazine columns that introduced much of this newer agenda to the Episcopal Church. Meanwhile, worldwide, the works of Gregory Dix, an Anglican, an Anglican Benedictine monk in England, who was doing scholarly work some of it's been called into question in recent years uh, on the traditional shape of liturgy. It was becoming influential in Anglican churches everywhere, but particularly in the U.S. He made an argument for a historic four-act shape of the liturgy, particularly the Eucharistic liturgy, which is the offertory and prayer and the fraction and communion. This is still influential to our prayer book today, as you can rec recognize, by our Eucharistic service. He openly criticized Cranmer for being Zwinglian in his Eucharistic doctrine and for framing his liturgies to express his convictions. Now, these influences combined with the fact that there was a new Canadian edition of the prayer book 
1959 prompted the leadership of the Episcopal Church to consider a new prayer book revision. Notice, this is the late 50s. The prayer book comes out in 79. The process was long and contentious, numerous debates. I'm just going to give a couple of examples. In light of ecumenical efforts, a lot of dialogue with the Eastern churches, uh, there was the question of the, should the filioque clause, the and the son clause in the Nicene Creed, uh, should it be omitted? You know, it was not originally, as any church historian will tell you, it was not originally in the creed. It, uh, it was placed into the creed in the Western churches uh, around 1000 AD. So there's that dialogue. Should it be removed? Should it not? Wound up not being removed, but that was a long and contentious debate. Another was, again, so this is a bit of the influence of theological liberalism coming in, which, of course, uh, was becoming more and more prevalent in the Episcopal Church. And we all know how that goes today. But uh, uh, there was a contingent who wanted to omit the confession of sin from the morning and evening prayer rites and from the Eucharistic rites. There was eventually a compromise on this, and it's one of the more irksome things of the 79 prayer book, in my view, that uh, it's in there, but it's allowed to be omitted. So, a lot of the time, if you go to a service that uses the 79 prayer book, you won't have the confession of sin because you don't have to. I didn't sin that week. Yeah. What's that? <laughs> you didn't. Yeah, you didn't sin that week. It's it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> Some of the changes that exist in the 79 parable. Um, uh, there are famously two rites for the daily office, the Holy Eucharist, and the burial of the dead liturgies. Uh, the rite one, which is more traditional, both in language and in thought. Uh, in language, it still preserves the these and thous, the Elizabethan, Tudor and Elizabethan language of the older prayer books. But it also maintains more fidelity to the thought uh, behind those prayer books. And very interesting thing is that, okay, so the daily office, the Eucharist, and the burial liturgies, those have traditional language versions. The marriage liturgy does not. There was the assumption that, that younger people would 
naturally go for the more uh, contemporary language. So no need for a traditional marriage, right? The, the Eucharistic liturgy was also assumed to be the primary Sunday liturgy. So this signals a shift uh, in, in churches at this point between churches that would typically do morning prayer on a Sunday morning and that form of the liturgy to, to doing the Holy Eucharist every Sunday as the form of the liturgy. Uh, this was a big adjustment for some people, as, as I've heard from talking to sources from that period. Um, so previous to that, they, they had optional Eucharist? Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and if, if there was anyone here present back in that period of time, uh, may have better information on this, but, but I've seen churches that are still like this who are still beholden to the 28 prayer book. And, and the, uh, the, the morning prayer was the default service. And, and then there would, you know, periodically, like monthly or, or whatever, or as maybe a second service if morning prayer was... Uh, if, if a church had two services, one, one might be morning prayer, one might be Eucharist. At morning prayer, you would have the option of, of staying around for, for a brief you know, distribution of communion. Uh, but, uh, but that morning prayer was typically the, the default service. Whereas now, particularly because of the new liturgical movement, and everything, the emphasis was restored to Holy Communion being the default service. So I would say that it's one of the better things to come out of the liturgical movement uh, is that re-emphasis on Holy Communion in Anglican churches. Uh, but, uh, yeah. And then a series of alternate prayers of consecration were presented as options, particularly in right, uh, right two of the prayer book, of varying historicity. Uh, there is only one of these that we have kept in, uh, besides the traditional right, which is uh, uh, the, one, the right that goes back to the Scottish Church and the Church of England, which is preserved as our ancient renewed, uh, sorry, as our Anglican standard text, uh, that, that one is, uh, goes back through our natural lineage of the English and Scottish churches and how that's developed. The second rite we have that's called the um, ancient renewed text, that that dates more from this period. It is in the, uh, the right to options in the 79 prayer book. And it dates probably from the third century. It's, it's 
typically called among, amongst other things the uh, the prayer of consecration of Saint Hippolytus, and so it's it's one of those things that comes from that effort to draw on more ancient sources. There are other prayers of consecration in the 79 prayer book. Again, I meant to bring my 79 with me. There is the one that, of course, is called the Star Wars prayer, um, amongst other things. <laughs> it's a... <laughs> It, it, has, it has more cosmic language in it and everything. It's really not awful, but it's also very outside the scope of what Cranmer or his immediate successors would have thought to put as, as a prayer of consecration. The, uh, the peace and the offertory in the Eucharistic liturgy uh, were in the liturgy for the first time. Uh, for those in churches at the time, this insertion, particularly the peace, you know, tur turn around and wish peace to your neighbor, proved to be a particularly awkward adjustment. <laughs> so I've heard. Uh, orders for noonday prayer and Compline were recorded, were included in the daily office for the first time. Again, this dates to the to the Anglo-Catholic movement and the renewal of movements of monasticism within, um, within Anglicanism. There were, in the early 20th century, uh, uh, groups of Benedictines, Franciscans, whatever else, formed within various Anglican churches around, around the world and there was a lot of interest in monastic practices to those who were not even in those groups. So having these extra prayer times during the day was something that became popular. There were sort of trial rites. There were informal rites that were existing um, since the late 19th century. And these finally made it into the 79 prayer book. Finally, oh, not finally. Uh, so the, the Psalms were freshly rendered in cooperation with modern poets. They got a bunch of American poets together to help re-render the Psalms. Uh, but of course, this broke from the five-century tradition of the Coverdale Psalter. And that's five centuries of music that had been set to that Psalter. So, prompted a lot of new music. Um, and the three-year Sunday lectionary replaced the one-year lectionary. The plus of this is that we are exposed to far more scripture throughout the years, throughout a three-year cycle, we cover a lot more scripture here on a Sunday. Uh, this is true both of the, the Episcopal Church and the ACNA, which uses a similar, not identical three-year lectionary. The, the downside is sometimes, because it's moving away from 
the readings that had the most direct correspondence to the liturgical year on a particular Sunday, there is you know, sometimes less of a tie there. Hey, Jacob. Yes. Go back one slide. Oh, sorry. Does that mean before they did this, there was more like hand and glove, and then now that they've gone to the three-year, it doesn't quite match? It, it still um, generally matches. It still generally ties together. It's it's more of a you know you were the you know with the twenty eight prayer book or previous prayer books you know they found the one set of scriptures that corresponded most to a particular week or a particular holiday in the church calendar, whereas now it's finding okay here's the three most <laughs> pertinent scriptures. Uh, and, choose, no matter. Huh? I'm sorry. It's, that, you know, there's, there's your A, your B, and your C. <laughs> yeah. And so you're getting a different gospel reading, a different um, uh, New Testament reading, a different Old Testament reading, uh, and, and a different psalm each of those three years for most... Uh, for most Sundays or holidays. But the single lectionary year was based on the 28? Well, the 28, the 28 and all the prayer books before that had, had one set of scriptures for each, for each week of the year and each holiday of the year. And so every year you would hit the same scriptures. So it didn't change until 79? Uh, right, right. That's, that's partly based on, again, the liturgical movement that was going on from the, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, the Episcopal Church shares the same lectionary as, as several other denominations worldwide that go through the same scriptures uh, on a Sunday. You could walk into a Methodist church and hear the same scriptures that you're hearing in, uh, in an Episcopal church. That's why it took so long to adopt it. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that for sure. Um, now, that brings us, of course, it was adopted. It became, it became you know, the standard prayer book. Um, it's also the one that's easiest to find on Amazon. So, um, Now... Fast forward, and most of you know, because you've been through the exploration class and everything, a bit about the history of the AC Knight. We're not going to rehash all that. Um, but during the first convening of GAFCON, which um, the, the uh, convention of, oh, Gosh, I'm almost at time. Uh, anyhow, you guys know what Capcom is, basically. It was concluded that the Book of Common Prayer was, uh, in the words of the Jerusalem Declaration, the standard of doctrine, discipline, and worship. Therefore, in its break from the Episcopal Church, the Anglican Church in North America immediately set forth the goal of creating a new prayer book 
founded on the theological grounding of the original prayer book through 1662. In a step away from the 1979 prayer book, texts that, quote, often bore little resemblance to what had for centuries been the Anglican norm were discarded, reducing the number of Eucharistic prayers of consecration to two and restoring baptism's theology of personal transformation rather than the, the, uh, uh, the direction of individual affirmation implied by some of the 1979 wording. Um, some helpful elements of the 79 and previous prayer books, such as midday and compound prayer times and the liturgies for family prayer, were maintained. The Coverdale tradition, uh, the Coverdale Psalter, was restored, rendering in modestly updated language built upon the unified uh, built upon the unfinished efforts of a team of British scholars and poets um, uh, in the early 20th century, uh, including T.S. Uh, Eliot and C.S. Lewis. So the, the Psalter that we have in here today is not only the work of Coverdale, but, but C.S. Lewis and T.S. Eliot were contributors to the revision that was eventually finished by ACNA scholars. Close attention was paid to both fidelity to the original Hebrew for the Psalms, uh, not just Coverdale's rendering of the Latin, um, and also to preserving his cadence and meter so that the musical tradition associated with his Psalms could be maintained. So you can still sing our Psalter to the music that was written for Coverdale's Psalter over the last 500 years. Finally, the entire prayer book was rendered in contemporary English. Uh, however, all the rites were retroactively rendered in traditional early modern English in a separate edition. It's green, uh, called the traditional language edition. But we'll get more into the 2019 prayer book and explore all of its features in two weeks. Uh, any questions, real quick? Yeah. Uh, I think you mentioned changes to the catechism, and I got the impression that the catechism was in the prayer book, no longer is. is that right? No longer is. Um, so, so, so the catechism, we have a catechism, but it's actually rather large. And so they decided to issue it as a separate volume. It's called To Be a Christian. It's actually really good, but, but it's, it's about this thick. And so uh, it, would, it would make this a little chonkier than it is. <laughs> Rob. Prior to Vatican II, was the liturgical service in the Roman Catholic Church communion? Or did they also change over from a morning prayer no, the, uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church, their, their main uh, Sunday service was always the Mass, was always communion. Yeah. Whatever happened to the British prayer book? The British prayer book is still formally, uh, the official prayer book is the 1662 prayer book. However, mo 
they released new liturgies in, I think, the 1980s in a separate set of books called Common Worship. And most services in England are now based on common worship. Some very traditionalist parishes still use the 1662 for some services, kind of like you know, some traditionalists in America still use the 1928 prayer book, but most moved on to the 79. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And I'll see you in two weeks.